This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 14. They paid the interest for five or six years, like clockwork, and then it was due to be repaid. Believe it or not, the vendor turned around and said, you've been so good in paying your interest, we're going to wipe the debt. Wow. <laughs> That's the most amazing story I've heard in real estate in about 20 years, actually. Hey everyone, how you doing? Thanks for joining me once again. I want to start by saying a massive thank you to all the listeners that have been reaching out and sending me messages, calling and commenting on social media. It's really great. I'm glad you're finding a lot of value in the show. It keeps me motivated to keep creating content for you so we can all become better investors. I have a huge announcement to share with you all today. I have been working on this in the background for quite some time and I think it has the potential to be a massive source of information for us all and could play a huge part in bringing like-minded people together so we can all achieve more. On the 7th of September, I will be launching the Commercial Property Show Australia website. This website is going to be awesome. It's going to be a place where we can all go and ask our commercial property questions and get answers from the community members and the experts you listen to each week. There is a forum section, a blog section, and you can access the podcast there. I'm even creating a resource shop where you can purchase all the best books and resources to help you on your commercial property journey. I'm really excited to build a community with you all and this website is going to evolve over time with more and more great content and resources. So if you would like to be notified and get first access to this website and be one of the founding members, which is free by the way, or maybe be the first person to write a post in the forums, send me a text with your name and email address and I'll add you to the launch email on Monday the 7th of September. So send a text to 0410-694-633 and I'll look forward to chatting with you in the forums. All right, now in today's show... Chris Lang and I are kicking off a six-part negotiating tactics series, which is going to walk through six scenarios in the buying and selling life cycle where your negotiating skills can play a huge role in getting yourself more information and a better outcome. So today is part one, extracting information from the agent. It's no secret that finance is a huge part of investing. I've heard the saying from many professional property investors that investing is just a game of finance with a few properties thrown in. So I've asked James Dawson to come in and share his thoughts and experience about the exciting topic of creative non-traditional finance and in particular vendor finance. In the world of creative finance, the possibilities are endless. 
If you think about the individual parts that make up a deal, there are three main parts with a fourth one that it can all hinge on. They are the ability to find a deal, the money to be able to secure that deal, the skill and knowledge to be able to execute that deal and identify add value opportunities. And then of course, you need to have the time to be able to do it all. But you don't necessarily need to have all four of these parts to get into a deal or start collecting interest repayments. You may have one or two of them, but if you can find someone with the parts of the deal that you are lacking, then the sky's the limit. James explains multiple ways that you can achieve this and get into a deal sooner than you think. Now, a message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we are always searching for property with development potential. If it's time to sell and you own a commercial or residential property anywhere in Australia that you think has development potential, we want to know about it. We might be able to pay above market prices. You can contact us through our website at www.developalife.com.au or call us on 0410-694-633. Now back to the show. Today's guest is none other than seven-time best-selling author and mentor. It's Mr. Chris Lang. How are you, Chris? Yeah, I'm good, Andrew. Thank you. Fantastic, mate. Today, we're kicking off a six-part negotiating tactics series that's designed to help the listeners stand out from the crowd and negotiate a sharp deal. So today, Chris, is negotiating tactics part one, extracting information from the agent. So how do you do that, Chris? An agent will provide all the factual information that you as a purchaser will want. Sometimes they're not as forthcoming as you might like, but they can't provide you with information that's misleading or untrue. So I think what's behind the question is how do you get to the real story behind why the vendor's selling and, and what's really going on? And that's tricky because unless you're a full-time property investor who deals with agents and particularly the same agents on a very regular basis, they're not going to be divulging what we'll call privileged information to you about the property or the vendor and the vendor's motivation. And the reason for that is that they have what's called a fiduciary or legal responsibility to the vendor and they're not allowed to do or say anything that could adversely affect the vendor. So what you need to do, and this is the role I play, is you need to have a buyer's advocate working for you. Now, I'm not touting for business. I'm not worried if it's not me, but I'm just saying that it's to your advantage to do that. And the reason is that people like me regularly deal with most agents across the board in the, either the geographical area you're looking at or the type of property. And we build up a rapport with the agents. But you see, an agent 
can say to another agent something that they can't legally say to you as a purchaser. It's the same way as solicitors will negotiate trying to resolve things on a contract in a manner that if you were dealing with the vendor or the other solicitor, you couldn't do. And so, I mean, quite often I'll I'll be talking on behalf of a client and the selling agent will say to me, look, let's just cut to the chase here. The vendor has bought another property or has run into financial difficulties and needs to make a sale. I mean, I had one recently where the developer, it was a a ground floor office suites, four of them had been sold. They thought they had a tenant lined up. My client came on board and was prepared to buy the property subject to the lease being executed. And then it became clear that we were at the, I think, the beginning of June, that as it was the last property, the developer wanted the deal wrapped up last financial year by the 30th of June. So the situation was that there's no way that the lease with the tenant was going to be executed by that time. And so, and there were certain incentives being provided in the lease, like rent freeze and fit out contributions to get the tenant to go in, which the vendor was happy to pick up as part of the deal so that my client wouldn't be out of pocket. And so between the two of us, the agents, we said, look, how about we discount the purchase price to reflect the incentives being offered to the tenant and also the fact that my client is now going to have to take the risk to make sure that the actual lease goes ahead and we're in the middle of COVID-19 and all. There were were a lot of uncertainty. So we ended up getting a significant discount because the agent could come clean to me and say, look, if we can wrap this up in the next fortnight, you can effectively shave, I think it was about 600,000 off the purchase price you know, on a $2.4 million deal. So, you know, that's a significant reduction. Now, the selling agent, if you were talking to him, couldn't say that, right? Because he's revealing information that is privileged, but no one's out of pocket. I mean, my client was happy. The developer was happy because, I mean, he was already going to pick up all the incentives anyway. So, I mean, the the reduction was slightly more, but for the convenience, because he was going to otherwise have to refinance just for one property before wrapping up the development, which was going to incur him in more costs, another valuation, all that sort of stuff. So he was highly motivated to wrap this deal up. And so there was an advantage in doing it. And all I'm saying is that you're asking a question, how did purchasers go about it? They can't. You just cannot get access to that information without an agent, a selling agent, leaving themselves open to legal action if, in fact, it all got out that he had divulged this sort of background information. I guess you could still ask the question, though, Chris, that isn't allowed to tell you. Well, you can ask the question and you'll get a vague answer. You know, you might get something, well, you know, he's keen to wrap this up and put in an offer, which doesn't really tell you a great deal. You understand that he's not testing the market. The vendor is realistic. But other than that, you're not going to get the the intimate details and also assistance in how to structure a deal that the selling agent knows the vendor will accept and I know what my client's prepared to pay. So there's nothing illegal or immoral in that. We just, I mean, until the contract's signed, no one makes a sale, right? So, and if the vendor's not happy, he's not going to sign the contract. But you need to have two agents, one representing both parties, so you can work together in structuring the deal. Yeah, fair enough. So I, I guess it comes down to some people will get a buyer's agent and then I guess some people 
prefer to do it themselves. But what are some direct yes, no questions that you can ask the selling agent to get the, the information that you need to structure a really sharp deal? The selling agent is not acting in his client's best interests to help you structure a sharp deal. That's where the basis in which this is operating. And you can ask the question, look, has the vendor bought another property? Is the vendor in financial difficulty? Well, there should be yes, no answers. But the agent's not about to say if his client's about to go bankrupt, right? The answer might be yes, he is in dire straits. But if he says that, then he's likely to be sued by his client, you know. So whereas as agent to agent, it's sort of like I've got privileged information. It's sort of like you see in these movies, can we talk off the record? You know, so there's there's no agreed legal implications, but we're just trying to reach a conclusion that will work for everybody. So it's unfortunately, there is no simple yes, no questions that, that you can ask. There's nothing to stop you asking them, but they're not necessarily, unless you've got an unscrupulous selling agent, they're not necessarily going to provide you with the ammunition that you're looking for. Yeah, I guess not all agents are as diligent as yourself and maybe the other selling agent as well. So maybe they can let a little bit slip now and then. So Chris, say you ask them, this is one of the questions that I like to ask. Say, has there been any written offers on the property? Does the agent have to tell you that? Well, in most cases there won't be. The agent will tell you if there's been offers. You can ask him what figure. Again, if he is being scrupulous, he shouldn't tell you that. If he does tell you that, it to me raises a red flag because it means that if I then make an offer on behalf of my client, he's going to immediately rush around to another party and tell them that offer. So while it might be frustrating that, that he won't tell you what offers have been made, if that is the case, at least you know you're protected if and when you make an offer. So you're not going to be used as a stalking horse to try and get the other party up. Yeah, I know it's not supposed to happen, but it, it seems to happen that where they tell you what's going on with it. Do you want to go to another bid or something like that? So probably happens more in residential property oh, okay. um, than commercial. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that if that were the case and not being an agent, in, in fact, I mean, I don't I don't even expect when I'm talking to another agent that he'll tell me what other office he's got. You know, he might say to me, look, the vendor is looking for so-and-so. There could be a bit of movement, but it's going to have to have a, a two in front of it. In other words, two million, right? But he's not going to come out and say, but I've got an offer of, you know, 1.95 already. I mean, that, that would be wrong. I wouldn't expect him to do that. And as I said, in the same way as that I wouldn't expect when I put an offer in that he would disclose that to any of the other interested parties. And if an agent is forthcoming like that and, and happy to share it, I would actually withdraw. I wouldn't continue because you're going to get into a bidding war and, and it's just not going to work. As everyone knows, agents will always tell you they have offers on the property by someone else and they're always, oh, you know, we've got other offers, blah, blah, blah. So I think a really good tip is actually say, is it a written offer? Do you see that working, Chris? Yeah, well, it could work, but very few people put in written offers. Most offers are verbal. I do, and there's reasons for doing that. But, you know, if they have got a written offer, they might say it, but it will probably just be, it won't be a letter or a formal 
it'll just probably be an email and just proposing a price and maybe settlement terms. You can always ask the question, and but what have you gained by hearing that they have put in a written offer? What what have you actually gained by that? Well, I would think a written offer is a lot more serious than, and I would take that more seriously than if you just said, oh, we've had an offer on it. Because a verbal offer is, it doesn't mean anything. No, well, neither does a written offer. Until you sign the contract, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so if you do make a, an offer on a property, does the agent by law have to present that to the owner? Yes, they do, but that doesn't always happen. And that's the reason why I prefer to always put the offers in writing because then there is a paper trail. When I say paper, it might be an email, but you know what I'm talking about, that if push came to shove and the vendor at some point claimed he never received the offer, you can at least point to an email and say, well, I did, I put it in, here it was on such and such a date. And then there's a hell of a quarrel between the vendor and his agent, but you're covered. Okay. What are some questions that you potentially, as a not as a bias agent, you could use on an agent every single time? Like questions that are stock standard, you use these just to try and find out things, like you're just probing. Are there any questions that you can share like that, Chris? Well, the first thing you want to know is how long's the property been on the market? I mean, the arrangement I have with agents is that as soon as a property is available for sale, but in most cases can't yet go on the market. In other words, that they might have, like this particular one I mentioned before, where they are close to or have just exchanged memorandum of offers with a tenant, but they can't go to the market because the lease isn't signed. So I get to see the property very early on. Now, that's that's the ideal situation because you've got a two or three week window before the lease is signed and they can formally go to the market. The other one is where Sometimes vendors, and we're probably talking before lockdown, but vendors would go to the market and would be too high in the stirrups as far as their price expectations, or the selling agent had artificially raised their expectations. Even the property goes to to market either to auction or expression of interest, and it doesn't sell. Now, what happens generally is that most investors keep an eye on what's coming up in on the real estate portals, commercial property, real commercial, etc. Now, if the property doesn't sell, they move on. They forget about it. They're just waiting for the next one to come online. So quite often, it's worth waiting till a month, maybe even two months after the property formally went to the market, by which point the vendors are getting pretty nervous, uh, particularly if they've made pre-commitments on something else. But the rest of the market is considers the property to be stale. And so it's in your advantage to A, know how long it's been on the market, but also it means that generally you won't have a lot of competition when you start negotiating because it's not like it's just come on the market. There are a whole host of people that are it fits their brief and therefore you're competing against them, that's been and gone. That time's over and the vendor is at a point where they're very keen to talk and probably do deals that they they wouldn't have otherwise done. But instead of you just stumbling across the property and thinking, gee, it's only been there a week, if you know it's been there for two or three months, it places you in a much stronger position. So that's probably the first thing I would want to know. 
Okay. So what information do agents usually give you that you should be wary of? Most agents will, when they're preparing the financial information, particularly if there's more than one tenant, they'll produce a tenancy schedule and then there might be a couple of suites vacant in there and they'll impute a rental and talk about a fully leased rental being so-and-so and therefore the price being asked is such and such a showing such and such a yield. Well, my first question is, well, if it's that certain to lease it, why haven't you already done that before you went to the market? So yes, it might be ultimately worth that, but to get the tenant in, you've got to advertise, you've got to pay a leasing fee, you might have to pay some incentives. So all of that has to be allowed for in making your calculation as to what figure you'll pay. And so, you know, assuming there's only, you know, it's 95% leased, I would more often than not base my calculation on what the current passing rent is as opposed to the projected passing rent. Definitely. And you have to find out if that's gross or net rent too as well. Yeah, generally the agents will provide a net position. You just need to make sure that everything's covered in, in the outgoings, either the tenants are paying them or, and you'll find in most cases they'll leave out a, a management fee that's generally overlooked, shall we say, and so you need to make some allowance for that in your calculation. Okay, during your time as a sales agent, Chris, I'm not sure the listeners know, but you were a sales agent at the start of your career or was it mid Yeah, very start, yeah. What's one of the strangest things someone's asked you? I've got to say there's, there's nothing I've had that someone has asked but probably the strangest event that occurred was probably back in the, was, I think it was 19, 1988, might have been 87, I think 88. And we were selling a, a property in Collins Street and it went to tender. And there were, I think, three people that were pretty close. And we're talking a 50-odd million dollar property here. So we went back to the three of them and said, look, if you'd like to sharpen your pencil, you're pretty close. We can't tell you whether you're the highest, but you're all within striking distance and we're going to give you one last chance to give us your best price. Anyway, we settled on one after we'd given everyone the chance to resubmit their signed contracts. And I rang the underbidder, who was at the time one of the leading developers and investors in Melbourne. And I informed them that they'd missed out. Well, the threats that I received <laughs> and abuse and the legal action that they were going to take and who they were going to call, and I would never do business in Melbourne ever again, because they had just outsmarted themselves. <laughs> I mean, they missed out, I think, by about, I'm guessing now, $250,000. But they just thought they had it all by themselves. And, I mean, I had to hang up in the end. It was just, I mean, I was embarrassed for them, but they obviously were annoyed with themselves for making such a stupid error. <laughs> well, so no legal action came out of it? No, 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 no. <laughs> And you clearly did a lot more business since then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people, the reactions when people find out that they've lost and it was their fault, emotions tend to take over. You've got to live with that. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Chris, we'll wrap it up there. Anything else you'd like to put forward on extracting information from the agent? Look, I don't think so. Please don't misunderstand. Selling agents on the whole are generally pretty forthcoming and 
and they will answer most questions, but you've got to understand where they're coming from. And I mean, they've got hefty professional indemnity premiums that they pay. And the last thing they want to do is is open themselves up to be sued for providing information which really they shouldn't reveal. Fair enough. My guest today has been Chris Lang. Thanks, Chris. A pleasure. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cashflow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cashflow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Back again to share his wisdom and knowledge is the man himself, James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. No worries, buddy. So the last time you were on the show, we spoke about traditional finance. And today we're going to talk about the different ways to fund a deal using non-traditional finance methods like vendor financing. So what is vendor financing? Well, essentially, vendor financing is sort of as it sounds, I guess, is the vendor or the seller of the property financing the deal. Generally, not 100% of the deal, although that's that's not impossible. But that's essentially how it works. And in America, for example, they do call it seller financing. So it's the same the same thing. Okay, so exactly how does it work? So say you've got a deal, you're doing a partial vendor finance. How do you even go about like offering that? Yeah, so look, at, and it can be a great strategy. And I would say in all uh, honesty and reality that, you know, it's probably if you ask 10 people if they would leave money in a deal by way of providing you with some vendor financing, you're probably lucky to get, you know, one or two that would be interested. Now, but in this low interest rate environment, that actually is helping people offer vendor finance because essentially what happens is, Let's say you're buying, you know, a million dollar property and you were able to, there's a couple of paths to this, but you were able to borrow, you know, 70% from a bank for that property. And then you had your 5% costs, which might be, you know, another 50 grand in cost to get into that deal. You really need another $350,000 to complete that deal. So you might uh, then approach the vendor of that property and say, look, you know, would you leave $350,000 in this deal? We'll secure it somehow. That's another discussion. But I will pay you interest on that money and pay the principal back 
to you in you know three or five years or whatever you can get agreement on so and generally the interest rate that they would be getting would be quite a bit in excess of what they would be getting if they deposited that money in in a normal bank but there are some issues i mean obviously in principle it's easy sometimes to come to a deal but then when you get to the legal nitty-gritty sometimes they fall apart because there's stuff that's got to be put in there that sometimes vendors or the purchaser don't like. Yeah, I've put this to uh, a couple of real estate agents before, and basically the, the response was, well, if they're going to vendor finance it, they just keep it, you know, because you're just paying them the cash flow that you're getting anyway. So I think it takes a different type of real estate agent, maybe a, a switched on real estate agent to really realize that this is a great way to actually get a deal over the line. Oh, absolutely. And look, that is a great point, Andrew, because a lot of real estate agents don't want to get involved in it. They just see it as a complication that they don't want. And I actually offered someone vendor finance last week on a deal. Now, so I'm dealing direct with a a guy that's interested in one of my properties. He said, look, I'm a bit skinny on on the finance. I can borrow a certain amount. And I said, look, we'd probably be happy to leave X amount in that deal for maybe up to three years as long as it was properly secured. So he goes, okay, great. I'll go away and think about that. But if I had an agent in the middle of that, they might say, oh, there's no way we want to get involved in that. We're not even going to ask James. So that sometimes as a buyer, you would really have to sort of push that barrow a little bit harder and perhaps uh, do up a little email and say, look, you know, would the vendor be interested in leaving $200,000 in this deal for three years? I'll pay them 5% interest only on a monthly basis for two years, then pay the principal out. Make it really simple, you know, don't worry about all the legal stuff just yet, just to see if they're interested. Now, it, it depends on the person and how long they've had the property and what their needs are, of course. Now, let's say you've got someone who has a property that they've had for you know 30 years and they owe no money on it. They're just selling. You know, people sell for so many different reasons, but let's say they're just selling. They just want to cash up. All they want to do is have cash in the bank for whatever reason that is. And, you know, when they really get down to the tin tax of the deal, they think, okay, I'm going to bank my million dollars, but I'm only going to get, you know, one and a half or 2% on that money. And yet, if I leave a little bit in the deal, I could get 5% on that money. So it's just depending on, and also another thing, if, if someone is really keen to get a deal, and it's like the deal that I'm just talking about with my own property, it's an off-market deal, there's no mucking around, I don't have to spend money on marketing and all sorts of stuff but the guy wants to buy it needs a bit of help i know the guy very well he's a very good operator so that helps you know of course but those sort of things where you think oh look this could be an easy way to move this property on but as long as the vendor who's providing the finance can get good security that is probably one of the most important points you know and that brings me to another point, Andrew. I hope you're okay for me to keep rattling on. <laughs> go, mate. Go, mate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you've got to be very careful. If you're a buyer and you're going to buy something using some vendor finance, some banks don't like that, you know. So if you've got an indicative approval from a bank to lend you 70% on a deal, for example, and then you say to the bank, oh, I'm going to get the other 30% from the vendor, they may well say to you, well, sorry, we're not going to do that loan because we don't like vendor finance, you know, to provide the balance. Other banks are okay with it. So you need to clear that up and you might need to go to another lender to get that deal across the line. 
So that's one point. But then how does that vendor secure that money? How do they know that they're going to get paid back? So in my own situation, offering that vendor finance to someone, I would want security not only over the property itself. It might be, I mean, I would be guided by my lawyer. It might be a second mortgage or caveat. But I would also want some security, perhaps a caveat over another property that they have. I just want to be really sure that if something happened in three years time, I could be able to get the balance of that money back. Yeah, I guess you'd need to check out the background of that person and really do your own kind of due diligence on him as well. That's right. So it's something that if the vendor is offering that, they really want to know who you are. And look, I, I did buy a property once with Vendor Financing in Byron here, one that we still own. And, and that was a big part of it for that person that was lending us part of the money was to really check out you know, around town who we are and do we pay our bills and, you know, all that type of stuff. And that's very important. And if I was going to be lending money to someone, I mean, essentially you're lending money to someone but it's got to be secured. So it's not just, I'm not just saying lending Andrew 200 grand, I'm lending Andrew 200 grand, but I've got security over a couple of properties, you know, mm. that's essentially the way it goes. Now, there are sort of more complex versions of vendor finance, which I don't really like, and I don't know a lot about, you know, there's sort of lease option deals and all that, which I'm sure you've probably heard of. I think sometimes they're all a little bit confusing. There's also other ways of doing it where the contracts you know, exchange and you're paying a certain amount off the contract until you get, you know, clear title, those sorts of things. And they're all potentially available. But I would say that most vendors, if they were going to get involved, want to keep it really simple. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good way to kind of leapfrog into another property potentially. So you might have the money, but if the vendor can help you out and then you can use the money that you should have put into that deal to pick up another deal, like you can kind of leapfrog a lot quicker than you could have if you just had to bought it outright. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you do have to have an exit strategy, though. I mean, you know, if you know, for example, well, like the property that I bought here in Byron, it was 800000 This is going back a long, long time ago. And I had available 500000 so I needed to borrow 300000 from the vendor. And, and she was an older lady and didn't want to have the cash due to a family situation so she was happy to lend it to us on just a second mortgage on that property and but it was a fixed term so it had to be paid out within uh, four years I think it was going back about 20 years ago now and we had to pay her interest each month so come you know to year three I can remember us thinking right okay we're going to pay this out in another year and we had to start organising that well in advance, which we did. So it's just something if you're on the other side of it and buy a property of vendor finance, it's not something that's just endless. It's an arrangement that's probably not as flexible as a bank in a lot of ways. I mean, some people offering vendor finance may say to you, hey, look, that's great, Andrew. You'd be paying interest for three years. You can extend that. I heard a fantastic story the other day I have to share with you. A guy bought a property and used vendor finance. The vendor helped him buy the property by lending him some money and they paid the interest for five or six years and, you know, on like clockwork and then it was due to be repaid and believe it or not, the vendor turned around and said, you've been so good in paying your interest, we're going to wipe the debt. 
Wow. <laughs> That's the most amazing story I've heard in real estate for about 20 years, actually. I know the people personally. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but they were just so onto it with their payments that the people said, oh, look, we've just never had a worry with you guys. And, you know, we know that you struggled to get it all together, so we're going to wipe the debt. And that was it. <laughs> so maybe maybe yeah, you could be wow. lucky for that, you know, that, that would be great, you know. Yeah, wow. So the types of deals that seem to lend themselves to vendor finance, they're add value deals, aren't they, James? So you need to have an exit strategy in That's mind. Right. It could be something pretty simple, like it's a big block of land I and mean, you could subdivide part of it, sell that down and then pay them back. It's, yeah. it's always good to have an exit strategy anyway, but in this situation, it's even more important. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, those sort of deals where you can see an upside and, you know, you know, I'm always talking about upsides that people haven't seen even for, you know, properties that are 100 years old plus. You might find a property that you think, okay, it's a small group of shops. The vendor's happy to lend me a little bit of money to get into the deal. And straight away, you decide to, you know, strata that property up if you bought it. Uh, one deal I looked at recently, actually, one of the course members bought is showing him about 9% net on a small shopping centre, it was about 1.25 million. Now he would be able to sell a couple of those shops probably at 7% net now, taking you know quite a chunk of profit. And if he did have vendor financing of say 300 grand, he would easily be able to pay that vendor finance amount out just by doing that. So look, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. And that, as you say, is probably the most simple version is saying, look, there is an uplift in this property and that would enable me to to pay the vendor finance out or uh, another way is if it's a property where you could bring say a money partner in and i do love the concept of just using that shopping center example you know you find a deal of a set of small shops say six or eight shops and if you're a little bit skinny on money yourself or you've used some vendor finance you get the deal secured then you find some other investors and say, hey, look, I bought this centre really quite well. Do you want to buy a part of it? You need to put in X amount of cash and to get this property and finance it, of course, and then use part of that to pay down the vendor finance. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? So I've been down this road before where I've tried to organise vendor finance and I was telling my the mortgage broker, your mortgage broker actually, right. about it. And she basically said, look, you're not going to be able to do that because essentially you're getting that 100% loan and the banks do not like that. Yeah. Is there any way around that, James? Uh, look, I think the thing is, and yeah, my mortgage broker's told me the same thing, same mortgage broker, of course. <laughs> look, I think that's where I did have a discussion once with a, a major big four bank and I had a deal on foot and I was getting some vendor finance in that deal. And when I mentioned it to the bank, the bank manager said, yeah, we'll fund them that deal, 70% lending. And he didn't actually ask me where I was getting the balance of the money. And I said, actually, the vendor's leaving some money. And he said, I wish you hadn't have told me that because we, <laughs> he said, look, if you hadn't have told me, I would never have known. But I think you've just got to be, these days, you've got to be very careful. You've got to be upfront. So I think what you really need to do is to source a lender and it might be a second tier lender, it might be you know more boutique lender that's slightly higher interest rate, something that you can get into the deal as long as the deal's good enough, have the vendor finance and that lender's not worried about you having the vendor finance. And then in three to five years or whatever relating to the term of the vendor finance is, that you then refinance the loan with a lower interest rate loan from a, a more major lender. So, you know, there's many ways to do that. And 
some deals that I've looked at in the past, I think, wow, I should have really gone out on a limb to get that deal, mm. even if I was paying, you know, 2% above the normal interest rate, it still would have worked. So you don't want to be just glued to getting the cheapest interest rate and dealing with lenders maybe that you just normally deal with. If they're not going to look at vendor finance, you might have to go and search someone else and just talk to a lot of a lot of lenders. I mean, there must be 80 lenders in Australia at the moment in the commercial space. So there's bound to be some that would say, yeah, look, we're fine with partial vendor finance. Yeah, that's right. So realistically, James, what interest rate would you start off offering to a vendor? And also what time frame would you suggest would be your initial offer to try and get the ball rolling? Well, I think the time frame is super important. And the preferable time frame for me, if I was getting some vendor finance would be five years, minimum five years. And I would say that most vendors would probably think that's a bit long. They're probably happier with two or three years, but two or three years goes very quickly. And interest rate wise, that's totally up for negotiation, but I would relate that back to the net return of the property that you're buying. So if it was, say, returning you 7% net, you could obviously quite happily pay them 7% net if you had to for the amount of money to get into it. But obviously you want to try and get that buffer again. So my initial offer might be, look, I can pay you 4% or something like that. And they might think, wow, that's great because I'm only going to get 1.8% or 1.5% if I put the money in the bank. So they're still doing 100% better than they are doing if they're putting the money in, in the bank. So it really is up for negotiation. But I think when you're making the initial offer, you don't want to be too hard because you don't want them just to sort of knock it out of the park and just say, well, we're just not interested. That's just ridiculous. You'd be better off to be a little bit fairer. But obviously, if you're looking at a deal that's, you know, returning 6% net and your other loan is at 2.5% or something like that, you could still probably pay them 6% and do okay out of that deal as long as you've got some upside there and, and an exit strategy in place. Okay. Have you noticed that vendor finance is more of an acceptable topic in the different location where the the actual property is located? Yeah, I think, good point. And people actually, one of the ones that always seems to stick out in my mind is some owner-occupiers that are selling buildings, so, and in regional areas. Well, let's say someone's had a, a fruit shop or something in a building, you know, for 40 years, and then you're looking at it to buy that building and perhaps put a new tenant in it or do something else with it. Those people actually have like a an emotional tie to that building, even if they're not working in that property. And sometimes they're quite open to the idea of still having a bit of a tie up to that property by way of having some money in that deal. And even better for them in their mind, if they're getting a higher than normal percentage rate. So, and also people that are selling a property that has been simply an investment for them. And it's a little bit like the one that where I offered the vendor finance or part vendor finance, where you say, well, look, this is a great property. There's a couple of reasons why I want to move it on and do something else. But I'm confident that the property is a good one. The person buying it's confident it's a good one. So I'm happy to have a bit of money tied up as long as it's partly secured by that property. So I can go off and do, you know, perhaps a better deal or use, you know, often when you're moving from deal to deal, it's just because you think my equity would be much better in this other deal than it is in that deal you know, or you've increased the value of a property like I have with this particular one. And you think, okay, I've done my work there. So I'd like to move on. Yeah, the reason why I mentioned it, James, is because I've put this forward to quite a few real estate agents in different states. 
And right. in New South Wales, never, never even want to consider it. In Queensland, you know, they'll consider it. They actually think it's not a bad thing. I thought that was quite interesting that mm. just just a different location, the different mindset of an agent really changed whether or not they were going to even bother putting this to the actual vendor. Yeah, I think that's right. Actually, I haven't had that experience asking one recently in New South Wales, but that is interesting. I mean, I guess there's also that slight difference with the contracts in Queensland, which seem to be often a little bit more straightforward than the New South Wales ones. So maybe that's why they're more open to it. So I guess my experience has been that regional areas, sort of places like maybe, say, Tamworth, for an example, or Tenderfield is one I was looking at once that had some vendor financing on offer, have seemed to be the ones where people don't completely just write it off straight away. But I think that the big point about this is you've got to sort of get past the agent's negativity on it, you know, which is can be hard. And even sending them an email that you hope they forward on to the owner you often wonder whether do they forward it on to the owner. You know? <laughs> so in that situation, I think if you are concerned that, look, perhaps this guy's not forwarding this on to the owner, if you have got a contract from the vendor's solicitor, which you should have at some stage, if you're getting serious about a deal, maybe your lawyer can then just float the idea to the vendor's lawyer direct. And that's not a bad way to go either. So because, I mean, eventually they're going to get involved. So obviously the deal potentially is hinging on getting the vendor finance. So it may be that you're better off to get your lawyer to talk to their lawyer and just float the idea and see how that goes. Yeah, that's a good idea. Are there any other non-traditional ways to finance a deal? Oh, there definitely are. And I think one of the biggest ones and easiest ones is getting a money partner So essentially, if you're short of a deposit, basically find someone that is an investor. I've got one of my neighbours actually does this, that, you know, lends out money at a higher than normal interest rate, but is really quite flexible in their lending as long as there's the same thing. Everyone wants security, unless it's, say, a family member or something like that, but that can be tricky. But, you know, you can put it out there in various groups. I mean, like my own commercial Facebook group page, sometimes people post up things saying looking for a money partner. Uh, there's plenty of those groups um, online that where people are sort of members of something where they've got a common interest. And obviously these things all need to be checked out legally and all that and, and lawyers would get involved. But that's a great way is just to get a money partner in, pay them interest at a fixed term and same thing, need an exit strategy. Some of them might say, well, look, I don't want to just lend money. I'd like to be part of the deal you know they might want to take 30 percent of the property that would not be my preference i would rather own the property 100 percent and just borrow the money but it may work another great way to get a deal done is particularly if it's a multi-tenant property that can be started up is to you know find a group of people that would be interested in buying a small piece of that property and you get into that deal pretty much just by putting that deal together So you've done the negotiation and using that example of that small shopping center I mentioned before, 1.25 million, but you get three or four other people in that put enough money in to get that whole thing across the line and you end up owning a couple of shops or one shop in there with a very small amount of your own cash in there. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic way to get into that deal. You'll have to give me the number of your neighbor because I'm in the market for some finance. Yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to add about non-traditional finance, James? 
Uh, I think, look, the only other thing I think is, which we didn't mention, was just, you know, having partners in a deal. But look, I have had partners in the past. Everyone's had partners in properties. And and I think sometimes uh, someone very wise said to me once, if you can't do a deal on your own, it's perhaps not worth doing it if you have to get a partner involved. You're probably better off looking for a smaller deal, you know, because I think sometimes people say, I just want to do this deal, so I'm going to get a business partner in and it's all fantastic at the start and it's all based around because you haven't got enough money to do it yourself, right? So they get a partner in and then, of course, everyone has different needs. You move on a few years and then, you know, sometimes it can go all terribly wrong. So that's just my last little point there, that if the deal's perhaps too big to do on your own, maybe you just got to look at smaller deals and work your way up. Yeah, you definitely need the right joint venture agreement in place there to make sure you have exit strategies for each of you if the deal does go wrong. That's right. And it's just it's another level of complexity and it want to be a really good deal to take that extra workload on, I reckon. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, if the listeners would like to learn more about how James has used commercial property to fund his early retirement, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS, or you can click on the link in the show notes. And where else can they contact you, James? They go to jamesdawsonproperty.com.au. Got lots of blog posts there, and they can get in touch with my team there. Fantastic. James Dawson has been my guest today. Thanks, James. Thanks, Andrew. Chat soon. All right, all right. That brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. All right, so this week's Ripper resource is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. This is a really great book. I actually found this earlier on this year, and then I re-listened to it just last week, And it just has really, really good, short, actionable steps. It explains the small things that you can actually do in your life or the small little changes that you make now that can have huge rewards in the future. It definitely is an eye-opener and it doesn't push you into totally changing your life or going a million miles into one direction. It just talks about doing the little things that can have huge great outcomes in the future. So this week's Ripper resource is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Thanks for listening to the show, everyone. Don't forget to text me if you want to get notified for the launch of the website. I'm really, really pumped about it. My number is 0410-694-633. And I want to say thank you to the guests and Kevin McLeod for the music. In the words of Grant Cardone, pay the price today so you can pay any price tomorrow. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Develop a Life production.